sometimes you'll meet people, especially in the world that we live in, where there are so looking for the next place to entertain, you might say. And there's plenty of entertainers out there. I mean, they're steady and consistent, and they rise up, and, and then they're kind of gone, and then the next kind of entertainment kind of group comes. Sometimes it feels like the church doesn't really prize Christ, but they instead prize their own appetites. So they create churches that are driven that way. They cheapen the message. They don't really desire your mind to be engaged, your heart to be moved, your hands to be active in the service of the Lord. It's a cheap grace. And it's um, easily taken in and easily left, you might say. We don't want to cheapen the message of grace, the person of grace. We want to exalt Him and treasure Him. And so we're going to be talking about what it means to follow Christ, what it means to be His disciple. And today we will look at the mission of the Twelve, which is really at the heart of this. Some of you are going to be like, man, there's a long portion about John the Baptist, and there is, and we're going to talk about that. But I think it's important to kind of frame it in that this is the mission of the Twelve. That's the heart of what's going on here. It begins talking about the twelve, and this section ends with a discussion about the twelve. And so, in the midst of that, this story about John the Baptist between the sending and the return of the disciples is something of helping them see what it means to be a disciple. What are some of the costs of being a disciple? And so, it's helpful with regard to those who even who are hearing it for the very first time, to be able to consider. Because Jesus said, like, you know, you got to consider, will you follow Jesus? Are you willing to give your life in following him? And so it helps those of us who are uh, seeking to follow the Lord to understand what it means to follow him. We want to, and we don't want to act like that doesn't exist, saying, and we don't want to tell people uh, the message of the gospel without saying, count the cost, consider, do you really want to follow him? And so Mark chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, as we begin, you kind of see the heart of the ministry. We're seeing them being sent out. And so we'll see the heart of of this ministry, both of Jesus and then what he will, um, in sending his disciples, what they will do. And so what you see is um, he is going about teaching And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. So Jesus' ministry, although he did a bunch of things, like some people, like maybe you don't think about the the fullness of his ministry. We see his healing and his compassion and all of those things. But at the heart of it is a message that is the ultimate healing and the ultimate compassion. That's kind of what you want to understand. And, and as he like cast out demons, we're seeing this ultimate victory that comes through the gospel that will rescue people from their sins. And so the coming of the kingdom, it, it's, it has come, and now he's calling these ambassadors of the kingdom to go out and share the message of the gospel. The world is dominated by the prince of darkness, and it's filled with disease and disorder and death. And what he is going to demonstrate is that the kingdom will overthrow all of those things, all the things that, re- as a result of the fall that we face. The kingdom 
when it comes, it's going to rescue us from the fallen state that we find ourselves in. And as Christians, we're looking at that and saying, I'm looking forward to that day when everything will be transformed and renewed and Christ's kingdom will come in its total fullness and we will experience that and see that. And so they're going to be announcing this kingdom. They're ambassadors of the kingdom. He is sending them out. And if you think about, uh, sometimes you think about them and you think about the disciples, even what we've seen so far, and you're saying, I mean, these ready to go and do something like that, you know? Uh, I don't know if you've ever been trained for a job. I had a friend one time, he was, he's a, uh, I guess he's like a family doctor would be his uh, title. There might be other titles that you could use in that way, but he's, he's a family doctor. But right after he finished all of his education, he comes out, and uh, I remember one day he said, like, this is the most frightening thing I have ever done. People are coming in, telling me about their sickness or illness, and I'm thinking, like, I'm, I'm not, sh- I'm, not I'm struggling with answering them because, you know, it's just a heavy thing for him to consider. In our training and whatever we might do, there's this element where, for instance, you go to seminary and you, you spend three years there, and then you, they say, go out and pastor churches, you know, and you're like, what? You know, even though the training, you might go to a great school and there's great training and there's all of this stuff, it's still, there's this, this aspect of it that's very difficult. And even if you're discipled under someone for several years following that, you're still like, there's this sinking feeling within. When I look at the disciples and Jesus sending them out, there's a little bit of a sinking kind of feeling within me even, because they are not uh, really uh, an example of someone I would say, man, they're really steady and ready and you know, everything's kind of straightened out with them. You know, they're still struggling in many ways. But the reality is, is we're not putting pressure. What, what the, the pressure lies upon the message that they're preaching. You know, that's where the pressure lies. I think that's important for us to say. The, the reality is, is that the, the Christ commissioned them. Christ told them to go and do it. And his, what he told them to go and do, his, he's empowering them to do it which is a beautiful thing. And that, the reality is that's the same for you. That's the same for you. You're, you're, when you're looking at whatever Christ calls you to do and you think, man, I am never going to be ready, you will not be ready, you take a step forward in obedience and you do what he's called you to do and he will meet you where you are and guide you in the way. And the neat thing is, is if you're in a good church, there's these ordinary means of grace that are helping you along the way. And so, why does he send them in pairs? You might say, well, it's nice to have somebody to talk to while you're going along the way. And certainly it is. Somebody that's like an accountability partner. Are you going to do what you're called to do? I mean, those are nice things. We're also, I think, though, at the heart of it probably is what you see in Deuteronomy 19, where a single witness of anything that's being done is not enough. There needed to be two witnesses. And so, they are going to kind of go out as witnesses in, in concert together, doing what they do and coming back and returning uh, when they're reporting to the king of what they have done. In both ways, that establishes something where there are two together. Now, what are they to do? They're to go and preach this. Uh, they're going to go, and we'll see more you know, about that, but we're, they're going to go out and preach the gospel. But he's giving them authority to cast out demons. And you say, well, why? Why that? Like, is that something that you just kind of walk around every day trying to find demons and cast them out? 
I don't think that's what we would say. I think that the idea here is, is there's something going on in the time of Jesus where, and it signals like His coming, that His kingdom has come. He's going to send these disciples out into the world, and those who are under the power of the, the, this present darkness, He's going to show His power over them to set free those who are in bondage to he's showing that the power of his kingdom is greater than the powers of darkness that those people have experienced and so there's a strong tie between a lot of the things that are going on and being disrupted in the world and the demonic and so he's going to call them to go out and do that and the emphasis again is not on their innovation there are tons of things, conferences you can go to to learn how to do church, right? And there are real practical things about all of that. But at the end of the day, the emphasis is not on message. That, that's, that's at the heart of it. True change comes through the Scriptures being taught and them proclaiming the message of the King has come. And so I think that's important to see. Now, what are they to take? You're looking at this and you say, man, this is not very much. I mean, some of you may have been on a, you know, a little weekend thing where you're like, I'm going to go out and catch or kill everything we're going to eat. And you might have gotten like really bad trouble that way, especially if you didn't catch anything, you know. And so, but you might say, well, I always catch and I always, you know, able to find something. But you might say that, but at the end of the day, that's not really what he's saying. He's not saying, y'all go figure this out on your own. He's saying, like, go out into these places without everything, like, without, like, storing up everything, and you trust me along the way to take care of you. You'll notice what they have, a walking stick, probably for protection and stability, if you're hiking along, something for their feet, again, that would protect their feet, a tunic and belt, they're wearing clothes, and um, it, it's, it's one of those things where it, it's a very simple setup. Because he's commissioned them to go out and do this thing. It's very simple what he's asked them to do. Now, some people would say Jesus is pushing forward like this ascetic lifestyle where you're like uh, getting rid of everything. And there is some element to where he does call those disciples to leave their nets and follow him. But in reality, this is a very specific mission, I think, in one. And two, I don't think the emphasis is primarily on promoting, hey, don't have very much stuff. I don't think that's the biggest emphasis. I think the emphasis here is that he is, he is teaching them to trust him and, and to move quickly and to do, to, to trust that he will provide for them. It, for some people, they think, oh, this is probably, uh, he's mirroring some person back in that time period, which is documented, which is true, that was kind of an aesthetic and all that stuff, but that's not. The idea here, I think the idea here is it's closer, like you would tie it to what happened with Israel when they were going out of Egypt. When they were coming out of that, that dark kingdom and walking in the light and walking away from that and walking trust, it's, it's almost, it's identical, a cloak, belt, sandals, and a staff. You can go to Exodus chapter 12 and see that. And so in this, what you, I would call a new exodus, Jesus is sending his people out. And he's saying like, leave all that behind and you trust me. There are some people that I would call a disciple like that 
demoniac man, the man that was demon-possessed, he didn't say, come and follow me. He said, go back to your home and tell them what all I've done for you. I don't think everybody was called in the same way as the disciples to do the things that they were to do, but all are called to trust in him and to rely upon him and to follow him. And so, in doing so, he's saying, trust that the king will provide for you. Now, what are the instructions? So you see what they're to take, but you what how, kind of the instructions are, how are they to act kind of in, the, in this moment? Look at verse 10 and 11. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust, of your, uh, the dust off your feet and saying, these people have rejected the king and his coming, the announcement of his kingdom. They've abandoned uh, following Jesus. They will not receive him. They will not receive his ambassadors. He's saying basically, if someone greets you and they say, come in, as long as you're in their town, stay there. That's, that's the right way to be. And if they reject you, they will not listen to you. The idea of shaking the dust off your feet is saying, like, as a testimony with two witnesses, these people, again, have not received the king. This might remind you of King David. Do you remember him uh, when he was going along and he needed supplies? And there was this man, uh, Nabal, who was, he was a, a wicked man. And he was like, I'm not going to give you anything. And David's like, I'm going to go get it and cut them down. Not uh, to not cure David. And, and she begged him to not, uh, to, not, to, to not like wipe out the city because of this foolish man that she was married to. And you know what? God wiped him out anyway. God killed him. And so it's one of those things where you're reminded, like when they're shaking the dust off of their feet, in Palestine, if you did something like that, generally it would be the Jews who might travel through an area that was a non-Jewish area, and when they got home, because they didn't want to pollute the Holy Land, they would shake the dust off their feet. Is kind of the idea. And so that is, I think, what you're seeing here. You, you just understand that that's, it's kind of one of those things where it's a judgment against those people uh, because they will come under the judgment of the king. They will not receive him. Uh, they will be crushed by him. It's the same as like in Psalm 2 where he says, kiss the sun while you can. Turn to Jesus. If you're here today and you're outside of Jesus Christ and you hear the message over and over and you have people announcing that message to you and you've heard it and you've listened to it and you're sitting there kind of like uh, oblivious to it or act like it doesn't matter or spending your life doing other things and say, Christ is not central. I do not trust him. I'm not hoping in him. The, the reality is, is if you reject his ambassadors, you reject him. Rejecting his ambassadors is rejecting the message of the cross. And therefore, instead of experiencing God's grace and mercy, you will experience his judgment. It's just important to note that. Now, verse 12 and 13 speak of the summary of this mission. They proclaimed uh, that people should repent. Now, some of you might say, why does he not say repent and believe? Why is there not a full-orbed expression here? The idea is you are turning to the messengers, trusting in what they say, and you're turning away from 
those other things. They're saying, prepare yourself, trust Him. And in trusting Him, you're turning away from your other ways. The ways in which you were living, the things that you were trusting in, and all of those things. And it says, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And so they are like the extension of Jesus' ministry. They are, those three things are prevalent throughout our study of the Gospels. You will see them doing this. In our passage, some people might say, well, what about the anointing of oil and the mean, means of healing or whatever? And certainly oil was used for all different purposes in the Bible. It's actually, James 5 is the only other place that it would speak about this in the New Testament. But they used it for all different types of purposes, and one was for the purpose of healing. Um, one author wrote, this, this is, uh, in our passage, the anointing with oil is more than a means of healing, but Equally, a sign of the inbreaking of the good news and anointing with the oil of gladness is the idea. Where there, there's this, this joy of the kingdom has come and he's brought this and with it restoration of all things. So for us, when we think about serving the Lord or following the Lord, wherever you are, whatever age you're at, whatever you do for a living, whatever you might do in the future for the living, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are called to follow him. And you're called to trust Him. And you're called to say, I want, wherever He leads me, I want to go. I want to be guided by His hand. I want to be, uh, I need to speak in me, to protect me, to strengthen me. And I'm trusting Him to give me the words that I need to speak in the moment. I was talking to someone yesterday about uh, sharing the gospel with a friend that's close to them for many years. And you think, at the heart of that, you're saying, God, guide me in that. I want to be an ambassador. I want to speak the truth, and I want them to hear. I can't make them hear. I can't open up their ears. I can't open up their eyes to spiritual things, but I can proclaim the message, and I'm called to do so. Now, you see, I said the heart of this is the cost of discipleship. These guys were sent out. But now, think about the cost. John the Baptist, his life is one of following the Lord. He is a forerunner, but he is a forerunner trusting in this message of the gospel. His death will foreshadow Christ's death. So at the first aspect of this, you say, when you first are introduced to John, you see him as a forerunner, both announcing kind of the coming kingdom which Jesus will extend and expand upon. And then when you see him later in the second part, you're going to see him, it's almost like the first passion narrative, uh, the first death. It's like his life was one of pointing to Jesus both in the message and in the cross. I mean, in the coming cross, he's like pointing to that in some way, in a much uh, it's a, a very powerful kind of example here. Now, um, when you think about them, you think about Herod Antipas, which he reluctantly is going to kind of do take John out, if you will, in the same way Pilate does that. And John is kind of silent in the way that Jesus is silent. Both of them uh, offering their lives. Of course, Jesus is offering his life in a way that will save us and rescue us from our sins, which is far greater. But his life, John the Baptist's life, points to Jesus in his crucifixion. John is the picture of the cost. He, he, he is. He, he demonstrates for us the cost of 
following Jesus. He, he, he is this kind of um, preeminent picture of what it means in the ultimate sense to follow in the steps of the Savior, to take up your cross and follow Him. Now, let's look at that for a moment and think about the cost. Looking at verses 14 through 17. Um, if you know, I mean, some of history, some of you may like, you know, thinking about history. When it says King Herod, uh, you might think of like uh, Herod the Great, but that's not, this is one of his uh, kings. It's actually, uh, his title would really be Tetrarch, which he, he liked to go by king. But he was really, after uh, Herod the Great's death, there were, the kingdom was divided into four different uh, pieces, if you will. And they, uh, Antipas uh, was one, Herod Antipas, who we're looking at, he was able to get a quarter of the kingdom. Again, still under Roman rule. So that, you just have to keep that in mind. Uh, so anytime he acts like he has this great kingdom that he's in charge of, he's really a puppet, kind of, if, if you will. I mean, that's kind of the way you would want to think about that. And so what happens here is uh, Herod hears about Jesus, and people begin to talk. Like, who is this Jesus? And some people are saying, that's John the Baptist that Herod killed. And other people are saying, oh, he's some prophet of old. But Herod looks at him, he said, it, was, it, was, it is John the Baptist that I beheaded. That's kind of the way Herod sees it in this moment. You just kind of think about that. Because for Herod, um, when, when Herod's thinking about you, his, he was probably afraid throughout his life. He's fearful after this happened of what might happen to him, his about what he had done. Because you know, as we see, Herod had... Um, convinced his half-brother's wife to leave her husband and marry him, and of course got rid of his own wife. And so in the midst of all of that, uh, John the Baptist is going to call him out, and it'll cost John the Baptist his life. So in verse 17 through 19, you see that Herod is perplexed. So just kind of look at that real quick, and you'll notice. Um, in verse 17, you see again, he had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of his wife, Herodias. Uh, she was really, really mad at John the Baptist. She, Herod, uh, in, in some way, whether that's personally or openly, but people knew it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And so Herodias, who wanted to silence him, she uh, wants to put him to death. But she could not because why? Herod feared John. He was afraid of him. He knew who he was. He said he's a righteous and holy man. And he's afraid. He was perplexed by him even. And the reality is, is every time Herod was around him, although he like, it was shocking that this man would be this bold, he also uh, heard him gladly. Because there's something about the truth in John the Baptist's words that kind of inspired him. It shocked him. It reminds you of Paul, uh, with the man who, who was like listening to Paul. And he, he was like almost convinced that what he said was true there's this authority that comes down but at the end of the day Herodias his wife who he married in this horrific way felt that the only place Edward says where her marriage certificate could safely be written was on the back of the death warrant of John the Baptist so we continue to think about what's going on here it's a frightening thing Herod is a, a foolish man, as we've already seen, and he continues in his foolishness. Look at verse 21 and through 23. This opportunity arises. 
for Herodias to do something very shocking. She's the one awaiting the day that she can rid herself of John the Baptist. It's Herod's birthday. He's got all of his friends coming, really powerful people. They're all gathering together for a banquet. It's uh, everybody that's in charge is there. And so he's um, probably, there's, there's wine and, and there's a meal and, and likely people are drinking too much wine and eating too much food. And it's this, just this festive thing, which nothing wrong with a good like a party for people to come together, but certainly in this way, knowing these people, it was probably out of control. The dance would cause this kind of response from Herod. Well, one, he's, pro- he's probably he's certainly been drinking too much. He probably is one of those people, you, you see him unstable already. So you can imagine how much just runs out of his mouth. And he says uh, the, 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 the things that he kind of comes up with and then thinks later, why did I say that? The problem is, is everybody's there. And so in the moment, uh, he says to her in verse 22, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her. Now, see, when it says that he vowed to her, that changes things. We don't always do that, but you see that a lot in the Old Testament where we're making vows or people will make a vow. It says, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Now, in one sense, he couldn't give away one acre because he didn't own anything, really. But it's this overstatement that you're like, what is he talking about? He says, I'll do it up to half of the kingdom. He's unstable. He's an irresponsible leader. You see that it's just things are gushing out of his mouth that are foolish all of the time, likely. And people are sitting there thinking, like, what's he going to do? Well, now, because he's so unstable and so foolish with his words, he's also fearful. He's fearful of John. He's fearful of the people that are there. Sometimes the biggest talkers of what we talked about in the whole world are those who are the most silly and foolish people that in the moment, like, don't have the wisdom to do the right thing and so he doesn't and instead he says okay what do you want you can have anything you want and Herodias she is so excited she seizes the opportunity because her daughter goes into her mother and says what should I ask for and the mother says I've got a great idea the head of John the Baptist and so she goes in immediately says I want his head I want it on a platter I don't want any time for Herod to wake up the next morning and think, ooh, that was a dumb thing I said the other night, but I'm not doing that. She said, I want it immediately. So you see, at one level, and I think it's important, wicked people are in charge of things. People that hate Christ are in charge of things. There are whole cultures, whole countries in the world that you could go to and visit where foolish people are leading And they don't like Christianity. And they don't like the truth. And they despise it. And people are being martyred for the faith. That is a reality. And that is something we have to understand. And so in the moment, like in this moment, as you're seeing this take place, you see Herodias, like her power over her husband in plotting the death of John is just so shocking. It reminds you of a lady in 1 Kings 19 Jezebel, who had the power over King Ahab and ended up killing a man for a field. It's just a, it is a scary thing. It's a frightening thing to see. Verse 26 through 29, you see that the king is sorry 
but he had made an oath, and he's looking out at the guest, and he has nothing else that he can do in his mind to, to keep his power, if you will, than to do what is asked. And so he has John the Baptist beheaded. And his disciples come and lay him in a tomb. John the Baptist is someone who is an example in the Bible of laying down his life. You remember when he goes and announces Jesus and speaks of him, he will speak of him in such a powerful way. He says he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's a messenger of the king. He is, he is announcing the kingdom. And he does so in the face of, of whatever he might face. He even, when people are starting to gather around him and think much of him, he says, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. Jesus said of him, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there's not arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And there's a lot to discuss in that, but I do think there's so, something very unique about him with regard to him and his willingness to do whatever he needed to. Why did he say those things? The reality is, though, he is a prophet. And he is a prophet of Israel. And the is, even though it seems like you would say Herod is kind of like a fake king, he still is king in Israel. And he is going to call the sin uh, out for what it is. So, you have here the cost of discipleship. The disciples are sent out without much, trusting the Lord. You see one who was sent early, before even Jesus came, and you see what it cost him as he followed the Lord. And now we come back to the return of the disciples in verse 30. I think Mark does this on purpose to help you understand things as he's done throughout Mark's gospel. In verse 30 it says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And so what you see is these people coming back and they're returning and they are saying, this is what we've done. We've done what you've told us to do. And then in the midst of that, he wants you to understand that just like the 12 who went out and did what they were called to do, John the Baptist does, and it cost him dearly. At this point, the disciples, it didn't cost them as much maybe. You know, they just had to go out and trust God would provide for them. But after, uh, as you go forward, Jesus says to them, if anyone comes after me, must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What he's going to say is, hey, disciples, you remember John the Baptist? You are following in the footsteps of John. You will see me die for this that I'm proclaiming, and you too will walk in that way. So, what do we do with all that? I think we have to say to our kids, I mean, this would be a good example. Let's say my kids come to me and say, do you know what, Dad? Like, um, every Christian, I don't let's say a church that I know, like they, everything's about them entertaining us. Can we not be entertained? I, I want us to be entertained. Jesus' disciples were not promised entertainment. That would be something I might say. It will be something you probably will have to say. You may have to say to your kids, listen, we're training you to be a servant in the Lord's army. You're, you're following the king. We're, we're not trying to entertain you all the time. And you're going to have to say, you're going to have to demonstrate for them, like, this is costly. It costs us time. We don't get to mess around as much. We take these things seriously. We are commissioned by the king. We want to honor him and serve him and give a, a, a 
like great value to his gospel. And so it, it's, it is going to be costly to your family. And you do as a parent have to teach your children like you are not the center of the universe. You will not save yourself. You cannot put your hope in you. You cannot put your hope in me. You put your hope in Christ. You follow Him. This is not a place of entertainment. It is a place of equipping you to know the gospel so that you can carry it out into a lost and dying world. And that's going to be costly because much of this lost and dying world cares nothing about the things of God. That's what you're doing here is being equipped to serve and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. It is costly, but it's worth more than any cost for you. It is of infinite value. It is of eternal value. And so what we're saying is, look, Jesus did so much more for us than we could ever imagine. The little we offer back is nothing. The little bit of money, the little bit of time, the little bit of like frightening things of like being able to speak with someone about the message of the king that we might get nervous about, that's nothing. And discipling not only our children, but our friends and those around us and uh, encouraging one another who are disciples we need to understand that part of what it means to proclaim the message is to proclaim that following Jesus costs. But it never costs more than what he gives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that we would be good stewards of the time we have on this earth. We ask the way that, we, that you would use the way that we steward our, times on this, this, our time on this earth would be something our, children's could, our, our children could follow and that others in this church could follow. It could be an example. We pray we would be an example of that where we are striving to do things that in, in all different aspects of life, in our work life, in our home life, in our church life, and all the different things that we're doing, that we, we would show what it means to model following Jesus, walking in the way like John the Baptist, doing as the disciples did and following him as he commissioned them to go out. We pray we'd be good stewards of that. In Christ's name, amen.